the Talent Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, this is Al Adamson, founder and executive director of the Talent Strategy Institute. Thanks for joining us today. I'm here with RJ Milner, who leads talent analytics at Chevron. RJ, you there? I sure am, Al. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. And, uh, you know, RJ, you and I have known each other for uh, you know, a number of years, and I can talk to you about you all day. So instead of that happening, can you just give our listeners a brief overview of who you are and how you got into this field of talent or people analytics? Sure. Thanks a lot for that, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here with you today and, and on the podcast. Uh, so as Al mentioned, my name is RJ Milner. I lead workforce analytics and planning globally for Chevron. Uh, our group does uh, uh, workforce analytics across the enterprise for Chevron, so across all of our countries and our reporting units of the different businesses uh, that we manage as a corporation. And our focus is really on uh, supporting the business and informing the, our business strategies with workforce data and other kinds of data, so operational, financial, and so on. Uh, we have all kinds of projects that we can talk about um, uh, along with that. But we also manage our long-term strategic workforce planning. And so that's looking at the not only the amounts of talent, but the types and competencies of talent that we'll need over a 10-year horizon. So that's a little bit of the type of work that we do, Al. In terms of my background, uh, probably like a lot of your guests, it's a non-traditional background. Uh, my, uh, my graduate education is in international economics and international relations. Uh, the economics piece is extremely useful when we're looking at financial analysis and kind of understanding organizational strategy. The international relations piece is actually very helpful when we think about uh, strategic thinking, game theory, uh, but also uh, operating in an you know, increasingly global and international environment. Uh, so as, as strange as that sounds, it actually tends to work pretty well. Uh, after grad school, I was uh, an investment banker on Wall Street. So actually on the derivatives trading floor for several years, uh, looking at structured finance and derivatives, uh, then moved to an organization called Corporate Executive Board, uh, where I worked in their research and executive education groups, really looking at the uh, uh, the financial impact of HR strategies uh, and became fascinated with how we can measure human capital and how the decisions we make from an HR perspective or a policy perspective can have an impact on financial performance. And we did a lot of work on things like leadership development and employee engagement performance and how that influenced company performance and total shareholder return. And that's really where we started getting very involved in workforce analytics and HR analytics. Uh, and uh, you know, that passion started when I was a banker and, and certainly developed through my time there. Uh, spent some time with a company called Citrix, uh, uh, growing and developing their workforce analytics team and capacity. Uh, same thing with, at Equifax, who so had a great time there developing their workforce analytics programs, uh, and that brought me to Chevron. Well, I mean, you have had an extraordinary journey, and when HR leaders and fellow practitioners talk about getting a seat at the table and having uh, issues dealing with finance, it, it sounds like uh, you're more than capable to address the the differences that finance might have with uh, people-related metrics uh, versus HR. So you're effectively able to bridge that gap pretty well. Is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement, and I really look at it as a partnership. So 
it is very helpful having a financial background in this role. It can uh, help be that liaison between HR and finance. And I think a lot of HR organizations or an increasing number of HR organizations uh, are building that competency in, uh, in finance and financial acumen. Uh, but certainly this role, when we think about workforce analytics, uh, ends up uh, or can be a great bridge uh, or liaison between HR and finance and having that seat at the table. You know, a lot of times I think of effective workforce analytics organizations having strong partnerships between kind of three groups, HR, finance, and also IT. And it really takes those three legs of the stool to be able to tell the story effectively and, uh, and understand the impact of changes in the workforce on organizational strategy. Well, I want to come back to, to that notion of uh, collaboration and, and governance around the talent analytics um, function. Uh, but for right now, I, I want you to address something that has come up. I mean, people analytics, talent analytics is getting a lot of press. It has been getting a lot of press for the past 10 plus years. And uh, Burson, as Josh Burson, as you know, put out research and uh, the assertion that we're about to enter the tornado and get to this heightened level of capability uh, in the space. Um, that being said, uh, that same uh, notion has been around for a long, long time. So my pointed question to you is, where do you think we're going with talent analytics. So why is it important? And should it be getting uh, more investment and more attention than it has historically? And I guess related to that, you know, are we in fact going to enter this tornado? Um, or are we just going to you know, kind of incrementally improve in how we're doing this work? That's a great question. Uh, and it's a really exciting one, Al. So uh, thanks for asking that. I, I think we are entering a tornado, but it might in my view, be a little bit different than people are imagining. And so uh, on the technology side, I, I completely agree that we're, we're entering this um, period of, of near exponential growth uh, and, and entering that tornado uh, that, that Josh describes. Uh, and it's a disruptive period where people uh, and vendors really uh, need to have uh, uh, distinct value propositions, right? The So... Uh, and I'm, I'm very sensitive to that, having uh, kind of have, uh, had a great experience you know, working uh, both with vendors and, and being part of, of some great uh, workforce analytics software vendors uh, in, in the past with truly unique and, and powerful value propositions. Uh, what's, what's exciting on the practitioner side is looking at the capability of the software that's coming out and what we can do with it. So we can do so much more. Uh, with our data and get so much more insight from the data than we could uh, five years ago, even a year ago. I mean, so th that capability is uh, is a lot stronger on on a host of fronts. That being said, I think the opportunity that's out there um, is how we interpret the data and how we apply that back to business strategy. And I think that's the element that's starting to get overlooked a little bit. So there's a lot of excitement around the technology piece and how quickly that's developing, uh, and there should be. But to me, that's an enabling factor, uh, and that, that enables us to, to add, to have that seat at the table you mentioned earlier, that proverbial seat at the table, to add the value that workforce analytics has always promised. You know, we've, we've been on this journey for well over a decade. It's allowing us to really tap into the data to tell the story. But the missing piece 
uh, and I think what what some teams do extraordinarily well is to take that data, to take the advanced analytics, the, you know, going from the descriptive to the predictive and prescriptive and so on, uh, and to map that back to organizational strategy, near-term business plans, long-term strategic plans, and say, here's how our current workforce can meet those needs, here's what we might need to change, here's the, the threats and opportunities and so on, to be able to really support and inform the organizational strategy and how we drive revenue and profitability. That's the, that's the real key. Uh, and the technology enables that, makes it so much more powerful. And so the, if I was to kind of add on to your question or take that to the next uh, one next step, I think there, there could be going forward a potential commoditization of analytics where the technology becomes extremely good and we start to push more and more of the work into the technology. Uh, we start to push more and more of the actual uh, labor into uh, outsourced or offshore providers or consultants, for instance. And a lot of the in-house work is really using those tools and having that competency internally, but maybe a, a smaller footprint of that competency, uh, and really looking at the strategic side of it of how do we take this knowledge, understand which analytics to run and how to run them, uh, but apply that knowledge back to the business. And so it's it's a very exciting time, but I think the a lot of the change might might be enabled by the technology that we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I, I can hug you for saying that. <laughs> and <laughs> related, if, if I can, if I hear what you're saying correctly, uh, we need a process by which insight is consumed and action, in turn, is taken uh, appropriately. Whether that be how we acquire talent, develop talent, compensate, communicate. And many organizations are, are lacking that process by which to uh, consume insider. Uh, they have an underdeveloped process that integrates with the overarching business strategy. Is, is that a fair way to, to package what you shared? I think that is fair. Uh, and, you know, we can look at other functions as, um, as benchmarks for this or predecessors in some ways. So, uh, you know, Marketing is always uh, used as an analogy uh, for HR analytics or often used as an analogy for HR analytics in terms of the, how, how marketing is used, external data and analytics and its approach. Uh, I think you can also use finance as an analogy uh, as well. Uh, so if you think about the tools that have been brought to the CFO suite and the way technology has been applied to the CFO suite, uh, technology in terms of data aggregation, forecasting tools, dashboards, it's allowed certainly the CFO role, but the entire finance organization to become more strategic in its work. Mm -hmm. I think we'll see the same thing with a lot of the, the innovations uh, that are happening now and the exciting innovations that are happening with, with HR technology and with HR analytics technology. Uh, there, there's so much great work going on, uh, and the companies in this space are, are pioneering. Uh, but it's going to allow us as practitioners to be more strategic in our thinking. Got it. And you know, when you talk about strategic thinking, um, many HR leaders have become more, uh, say, uh, clear that oftentimes they don't even know what questions to ask or what questions they, they should be asking. So is it a fair uh, concept to uh, take in that we need as practitioners to 
create the space for them to be vulnerable and explore what questions are most appropriate for them and also provide ideas on what questions they can be asking that we can answer through analytics? Is that something that you're doing there at Chevron and, and have seen elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, it's it's an interesting question. And, uh, you know, different companies and certainly ones that, that are probably on your show have different approaches to this in terms of how much white space you want to have. Uh, but I, I think that, and I can kind of get back to that concept in a second, uh, but the, that idea of help me understand what questions I should be asking but haven't thought to ask uh, is a, uh, one of the best ways we can add value. So uh, I had a, a leader ask me that not very long ago, and it's actually one of the, the uh, underpinning principles behind our strategic workforce planning. So with, with our long-term workforce planning, it's not just uh, marrying up supply and demand forecasts. It's, it's looking at those things along with competencies to understand what questions should our HR organization and leadership be asking that we haven't thought to ask, you know, yep. whether it's supply and demand or demographics or competencies, how it aligns to differences in asset classes, all these kinds of things. Uh, so I think we, you know, we should be uh, absolutely uh, arming our HR organization and allowing them to have that degree of vulnerability uh, uh, to ask those questions. Now, that being said, getting back to my, my point earlier about how much white space do you want to have, uh, some organizations uh, feel very comfortable creating research organizations where there's a lot of white space and say, you know what, let's create a research project uh, where we don't know where this is going to go, we don't know what the business application of this is going to be, but it's an interesting question, let's figure it out. And that's fantastic. Other organizations uh, may want to shrink that white space and say, you know, our focus is on supporting the business and we, ha we are interested in exploring some of these questions, but we really have a keen eye on ensuring there's, a, a, there's an ROI or at least a probability of a strong rate of return on this. Um, and that's a company-by-company company kind, of, kind of choice. Uh, you know, on our end, when we look at our research agenda, our research agenda is, while there is certainly some degree of exploration, it's really more informed by how are we supporting and informing our business strategy. There's not a lot on there that isn't directly tied to that. Got it. And, you know, you're talking about the questions that leaders want or need to know. You're talking about process. You've alluded to you know, the technology. You've also mentioned you know, dashboards, which is obviously leveraging the technology. Uh, for those who are just starting out on this journey or, or maybe interested in taking the next step, uh, which one starts? Where should the priorities uh, be in your experience? Or is it an and? Is it, you know, across the board, you just keep these things, uh, you know, marching forward as, as quickly as possible? I mean, what would you advise? I think it's an and, Al. Um, mm -hmm. it, and it's, it's tough. So when we, uh, we went on this journey um, about three years ago. And uh, this or this department, the uh, used to be called Talent Strategy and Analytics, started in 2009, and, and so a lot of the the hard work uh, was done uh, back in 09 before I joined the group 
in terms of kind of bringing the group together, uh, defining a measurement strategy, looking at the KPIs, uh, getting that instituted across the enterprise, and creating creating an initial degree of governance. But when I came into role in 13, uh, we started looking at uh, you know, how do we create more efficiencies, how do we start to uh, really inform and support the business, apply more advanced analytics, uh, build capability across the enterprise, uh, kind of adopt more of a COE model, consolidate things like that. So it was, it was more of an acceleration, building up, standing on the shoulders of what was already built uh, back in 09, and, and that really great work that happened in 09. And so when you think about kind of that, escal that ex escalation or acceleration path from 13 to now and 16, uh, and your question about, hey, you know, strategy or technology. It takes both, but I think strategy and business alignment is actually more important. Got it. Uh, because you can, uh, and there's some great work from CLC on this, um, uh, the, from a study they did that looked at the relative yields or benefits from, from two different paths that, that informed some of our own strategy. But the, uh, uh, the way I look at it is that you can – you know, if, if, we're, if we're totally budget neutral, and budget is uh, often uh, uh, <laughs> legitimately a constraint on these kind of decisions, right? Uh, but if we're, budget, if we're totally budget neutral, all things being equal, uh, we can load up on technology and uh, have all the best tools available. But if we don't know how to use them or apply them to a business decision, uh, then it's just a bunch of numbers or PowerPoint decks that you're going to give to a leader, and they're going to say, okay, now so what? What do I do yeah. with this thing? Uh, if, uh, if we really get to understand the business and what we do, engage with business leaders, collaborate with them, become their partners, we can still have fairly rudimentary tools and techniques, but we're applying some very kind of basic principles, basic analytics that solve their, uh, their immediate questions. So we have that legitimacy. We have that tie-in to understand what they need. Then you start layering on the technology, layer on the sophistication, uh, and you can, you can create uh, multiples of the of value, and that's the approach we took, and it was it was pretty successful. Well, you're you're touching on some topics I think that are extraordinarily important because I believe many CHROs grew up in an era where a lot of what's possible um, now wasn't possible. So there needs to be uh, a learning mindset among those CHROs, yet they don't know uh, where to turn and they don't know uh, where uh, to when to secure a technology, uh, who to hire, um, what a team looks like and, and so forth. And I say that compassionately, not, not critically. So uh, my question to you, and you've answered it to some extent, if you're a CHRO and you're getting questions from the executive leadership team and the board around fair pay and diversity and uh, retention of uh, key contributors or high potentials or whatever the language might be, uh, where would they start? What would be the first uh, two or three uh, action steps that they would take um, from your experience? Well, listen to your podcast, Al. Uh, that would be the, the, the first first question, first uh, step. The, uh, you know, it, 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 it's it's a great it's a great question in terms of what the due diligence process should be when when look, looking for a technology purchase. Um, the I, I am 
slightly biased in terms of the those technology decisions um, the in terms of of looking at um, it, one of the first steps is just understanding what's the what are the vendors out there and, and looking at analysts as a, as a first step of doing that. So uh, Gartner's Magic Quadrant is an example or, or what are analysts saying about different things, but uh, that's, just one, that's just one approach at a very early stage of due diligence. I think what has to happen before that, and sometimes what gets missed, is doing uh, basic requirements gathering. Yep. So what is it that we actually need to accomplish? And sometimes we jump in to these technology decisions based upon what do we know, what what technology do we already have, are we going with a best-of-breed or best-of-suite kind of decision. Uh, but the very first step is requirements gathering, and I don't mean requirements gathering as uh, I need kind of this field, this field, this field. Before we even do that, it's what business outcome are we trying to drive or what business question are we trying to answer. Yep. Uh, and when we identify that at the very beginning, and then we start talking about requirements, and then we can start talking about, well, what situation do we have? You know, what's our architecture? Do we have one system, one ERP, or do we have multiple? Uh, what are we looking at? And then we can take that next step of looking at the environment, and that's where uh, analysts' opinions become very informative. And you can look at the things like Magic Quadrant and so on and, and talk to, to, you know, very informed people in the field, such as yourself and, and others, to understand kind of what what is the market landscape, what does it look like. But if we're not, if we do that without a clear understanding of where we want to go and where what our current situation is, it's way too easy before we even get to the interviewing stage of technologies, uh, and certainly before the sandbox stage, uh, it's way too easy to start locking in on a vendor that's a very very bad fit, because they may have a great technology, they may be kind of the top right quadrant, but they're a bad fit for either your environment or what you're trying to accomplish. So that would be, that'd be one answer. Yeah. You know, love it. And I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that alludes to uh, something that you mentioned earlier and if you could define it uh, quickly or uh, for the, the audience, uh, this notion of research agenda, what is that for you? Is that a list of analytical projects that are undergoing or, or possible? Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks for bringing it up. And it's, uh, uh, it's actually something that uh, we, we just put this in place uh, earlier this year. And uh, I got the idea from uh, what the folks at Walmart were doing. So it's one of these things that we, you know, we learn from each other inside the community, but the, um, uh, the research agenda are uh, a list of, of projects we have that are uh, for the enterprise, or they could be for specific customers, uh, functions, or business units across the corporation uh, to answer key key business questions, and they are uh, kind of ongoing or in the future. So we plot them on a calendar basis, uh, you know, quarterly or, or monthly. And so we have a a research agenda that goes out into 2017, and we uh, we build that out, and kind of the, that usually sits under our uh, workforce Analytics COE or Center of Expertise. Uh, we we build that out based upon the um, the importance and urgency of the projects, what they can answer. So a lot of times we have uh, static deliverables, you know, things that we are we're producing on a 
a periodic basis, whether that, you know, it, it might be reporting, it might be specific kinds of projects or deliverables that uh, we, we produce for an executive audience or, or a, a senior audience uh, every so often. Uh, we have other things that are more reactive. You know, we get questions coming in, and they're kind of quick turn, quick answers, but they're there's time going kind to of build into the COE to take on uh, more uh, more longer-term investigative projects. You know, one example, uh, for instance, is uh, quality of hire. Right. So, uh, what are the predictive indicators of? Uh, and you, how do you define quality of hire? And then, what are the predictive indicators of it? Um, the and we we plot those out as we. The way that we come up with those, uh, actually we plot those out kind of in terms of what we're going to pursue and then we put them on a calendar based upon business need and timing and how it integrates or synchronizes with other aspects on the, on the calendar. Is it going to link up with business planning? Is it going to link up with certain leadership meetings or strategic meetings and so on? Um, how we prioritize those, is it's based upon our interactions with the business. So as we talk with business leaders, as we talk with functional leaders, we, different elements of the business, we're hearing kind of demand or requests, uh, or we may be seeing uh, business opportunities or business challenges, and we'll think of something based upon these other conversations or our own knowledge of the data, and we'll suggest something and we'll test it out and say, would this be interesting? And as these requests come in, we high grade them. So. Uh, with our own proposals or with requests that come in, we'll look at what's the level of difficulty uh, or feasibility of the request versus the business impact. And we'll plot mm -hmm. those out. And when we look at the things that, you know, that are high difficulty, low value, you know, those, those get thrown away unless there's a unique, uh, unique reason why we need to pursue that. Uh, and we'll high grade the things that are, um, you know, high value, Low, low difficulty. Of course, those things will get turned out immediately, and you know, we start to look at at um, at the rest in terms of how we prioritize in the research agenda. Got it. Well, yeah, that makes perfect sense, and I wish, frankly, more organizations uh, took that approach. And I, I think there's momentum towards that end. And within that research agenda, in the say three and a half minutes we have left, uh, can you explain the idea? And this is one of the most favorite things that you do. Uh, that I'm aware of is the notion of probabilistic decision-making that you're not putting forth uh, assertions that uh, this is certain, um, but you're oftentimes assigning a probability that this is the likelihood something is going to happen. Can you sh share you know, what that looks like for you? Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> thanks for bringing that up, Al. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the great things about Chevron and uh, like many uh, c companies that may be listening to the, the podcast is that we are a, a bunch of engineers, right? So um, uh, when, when, I, when I joined the company, we started talking about um, an approach called P10-5090, which is basically different levels of probability on an outcome, uh, or you know, uh, 10th percentile, 50th percentile, 90th percentile outcomes. And so uh, from a workforce analytics perspective, we started thinking about, let's take that kind of p 10 uh, probabilistic approach to some of our own predictive work instead of a more deterministic approach, which is you know what we often uh, often do in our space. And, uh, and so when we started looking at uh, demographic forecasting or uh, attrition forecasting, certainly workforce planning, uh, we began applying a, prob a more probabilistic approach or basically a kind of a P-1050-90 or, uh, or variance of that 
kind of thinking to our work. And what that really, and I can tell you about kind of in the kind of two minutes we have left, I can tell you about some extensions of that. But what that what that provides certainly provides uh, some credibility because you start speaking in the vernacular of your customers, right? So uh, with a bunch of engineering customers are saying, well, we did a P ten fifty ninety on this, and they say, oh, okay, I I understand what you're doing, and so there's a um, there's there's a common understanding, common vernacular, and there's a credibility that goes with that. Uh, but also it allows you the flexibility to move with unknown changes in conditions or changes in the market, which is incredibly important because especially in the work that we do with workforce analytics, we can't be so deterministic. You know, we don't know what might happen. There might be a, a change in interest rates, a change in labor market, for us a change in crude prices. Uh, we need to have some variability in what the scenario might be. So, uh, we've been applying that more and more in our work uh, where we might have a base case, uh, but we'll have a high-low, we'll have a P10-5090. Um, in our workforce planning, for instance, we're looking at multiple scenarios based upon different kinds of uh, indicators, right? And so uh, with, our, uh, with our workforce plans, they're really predicated on providing business leaders different um, uh, different game plans. So in, in this kind of scenario, in this market environment, you may want to look at this. If the market environment changes to this kind of scenario, we might be looking at this. Uh, and it's all wow. based upon that kind of probabilistic decision-making. RJ, I mean, that's fantastic. And you know, again, I wish more took that approach and chose to use that common vernacular as you're talking about. And yeah, I really want to thank you for joining uh, me today and uh, wish you the best of luck in your future journey and uh, look forward to talking again very soon. Appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure, Al. Thanks for the time. Uh, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Talent Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. For other podcasts and to learn about upcoming events, please visit talentstrategyinstitute.com.